And then just one thing on the strength side, I do want to call it that I find interesting is like also recognizing what you're not strong at, like what you're weak at. Cause there's certain things I just know I will never be good at, or maybe if I spent all my time focusing on it, I could be okay. And what I did, you know, is find people who have those strengths within my team to backfill that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Nils Vinya, and today my guest is Dustin Tizik. Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, Nils. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. You got in touch with me because you had been following the B2B Leadership Podcast. You are a host of the B2B Revenue Leaders Podcast. And it was kind of interesting <laughs> how we had two very similar, not necessarily similar shows, but two shows of very similar names. How long have you been running the B2B Revenue Leaders Podcast? Yeah, so I've had that one going for probably six months or so. I think we're like 40 episodes in time flies but yeah, yeah wow. we're at about 40 and then prior to that yeah i hosted another podcast it's kind of funny that was a little bit similar to yours called people at work where it was on leadership and culture topics and did like 150 episodes of that so always fun to be on the other side of the camera here and having yeah. a conversation isn't that nice isn't it it's such a difference when you're the host versus when you're the guest and you know both sides are equally fun but Sometimes it is good to change it up. So I'm glad you get the opportunity to do that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the VP of Revenue at Testimonial Hero. Would you share just a little bit about Testimonial Hero? Yeah. So the, the short of it is we create video testimonials primarily for B2B companies. But the difference we do there is we want people to take a strategic approach. So rather than generic two-minute video on the website, you know, chop it up and have like similar to what we do with both our podcasts, actually chop up the content so you can use it throughout the whole buyer's journey. Um, so yeah, that's what we specialize in at Testimony Hero. Been doing it. They've been doing it for about four or five years. I've been here about a year and yeah, love my time here so far. Fantastic. Cool. Well, that sounds like a wonderful product and testimonials. There's no, no substitute for incredible content. Exactly. It comes directly from your customers who've gotten value out of your solution, so super cool. All right, so today's topic is all about adapting your leadership style to that of your employees. And before we jump into some tips and strategies and things to consider, maybe you could share a little bit about why you feel or you felt this would be a great topic when we were going back and forth trying to settle on where we were going to focus today. Yeah, for sure. It's one that I personally overlooked early in my career as a manager and, and didn't really think about because you hear, you know, management best practices and here's how managers should act. And people have in their mind, like leader, they think this charismatic person who maybe talks a little bit too much. And that's not at all what it actually is. It's more about coaching and adapting. And I would say I'm, I guess, an ambivert, like kind of in between introvert, extrovert, depending. So for me, it was, I had to get used to like the hardcore extroverts and the people who were Introvert and need to think a bit more and, you know, had to kind of go both ways there to manage them effectively. So it's just a topic that I've messed up a lot, I think, in the past, and I think I'm okay at now. So I think it's a good one. Yeah, no, it definitely is a good one. And it's something we've all experienced, myself yeah. included, for sure. I would count myself in the introvert category with the ability to where, you know, I view it as the definition is, where do you get your energy? Do you get your energy yeah, 100%. from? 
you know, being isolated by yourself or do you get it from being around other people? And I certainly recharge best when I'm by myself and it's more of a drain when I'm with people, right? So it's not the classic, like, you know, you're a salesperson, you love to talk and whatever, you're extroverted, not necessarily the case, but I, I hear you hundred percent. And so the way I approach the world is very different than the way you approach the world is very different than somebody else approached the world. And I think that's the key yeah. of what we're going to get to the bottom of today. Exactly. I think that's a key distinction to call out there is people here introvert and they just think shy and yeah. they hear extrovert, they think loud, but it's not. It's even how you process information as well as a key component of it. So yeah, I think when you're aware of all that and what it actually means and how people behave, it just makes your job as a manager a lot easier. Yeah, agree. And and that I mean, I think that gets to the core of the first piece we should dig into, which is being aware of yeah. how other people behave. So maybe you share a little bit about what that means to you and what that means in your role today. And then I'll share my take on that as well. Yeah, I think a big part of it is just taking a pause once in a while and reading the room and thinking about the people you're working with and communicating with, especially if you know, you're know you on a tight deadline or it's a topic you're passionate about and you're working with someone, it's easy to just default to your normal behavior and you know your natural tendencies, which are going to work well with some people and not with others. And, you know, it, it jives with different types of people based on your personality and where you fall. And in your day-to-day -day life, you probably associate with people who naturally jive with you a bit more. Whereas in work, it's a massive variety of people, personalities. Yeah. So that's a key part sometimes is just pausing, reading the room and looking who's in it. And before that, you know, actually getting to know the people on your team and the people you work with and understanding their personalities and taking the time to invest in that, it pays huge dividends. Absolutely. The taking a pause is one of those things that conceptually simple, infinitely complex. Yeah, <laughs> in the exactly. fast paced world that we run in, in the B2B space, there's always some other problem to solve, project to do, customer to serve, you name it. There's something yeah. else to do. And taking a pause can actually be the hardest thing to do. So do you have any tips or recommendations on how leaders can take a pause, like especially in some kind of emotionally charged situations where there might be a lot on the line and bringing a group of people together? Like, How do you suggest they actually take a pause? I mean, this is going to sound probably too simple, but it's just 100% self-awareness and drilling that into your mind to to do that and actually pause for a second. And it's especially hard, like you said, when it's emotionally charged and depending on the conversation and what you're doing, that's why it's okay to kind of call time out or let a natural pause happen or step away and say, let's revisit this. Because sometimes people need time to process the information, actually give their point of view. So giving them that time respectfully is super important. It's also incredibly hard to do unless you're a very self-aware person, which I think it's kind of a natural trait, but I also think you can learn self-awareness and you okay. know, it's a necessary thing to do. Yeah, self-awareness is actually the first pillar of emotional intelligence. And it, and it is absolutely 100%, I believe, something that can be learned and something can be improved forever. You'll never be yeah. perfect at it. You'll never, because you, you're, you're wired to see the world a certain way. We all are, and that's okay. Yeah. But one of the things I like to do is prior to meetings, and I have a lot of meetings throughout every day, I'm sure you do as well, yeah. is that critical, like it doesn't even need to be much time, like the last 30 seconds to a minute before the meeting is my kind of zone of, okay, let me get centered on what's going on. Yeah. That's my pause. And it's in, put in there specifically and the back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back nature of meetings, like I don't 
try to do everything possible to ensure that I'm not running from one environment to the next. Because if you run from one to the next, chances are you're not going to pause and it's going to feel really hard. But if you implement that pause right before, just in the couple 30 seconds or a minute right before, just think about your why, what are you doing, who the audience is, how you're going to serve them, how you can, you know, what are the different personalities in the room that are coming? I think that can help a tremendous amount taking a step back. Yeah, definitely. And I think kind of to to go off that a little bit, the other thing that helps, which also seems simple, is actually having a shared agenda for a lot of meetings where it makes sense. I mean, there's certain times where, you know, it's on a specific topic, you need to run it, but having a shared agenda and letting maybe some of those more introverted people who need to think a bit rather than just bounce ideas and, you know, get energy that way to put their idea and own their space on the agenda. I found that worked and it was shocking to me where, you know, someone who maybe didn't open up a lot was afraid to kind of speak up in a group meeting. When you give them that space, the genius ideas you can get that it, it opened my eyes and I was thinking, man, I missed out on all this stuff for six months, a year. Like all I had to do is give them space. So I think that's a key part as well. That's a good, that's an incredible call out. And, and so how much time would you do in advance? Cause there's, you know, people who want to process and are going to do things better in isolation versus in the meeting. Was this something you would prep, you know, a week or two in advance and give them heads up and notice they had plenty of time? Was it a day? Like what was the, the gist that you found worked really well? I think aim for a week when you can, I think is enough time. And I think the key too is, you know, actually set a goal for the meeting and what you're getting out of it. We all have meetings that could have been an email and probably weren't that useful. Yep. So setting a goal, you know, here's where we're trying to get to. This is my planned agenda. What am I missing? What do you want to add? And then giving them time to think and digest that. Then they don't just add things that are semi-related or kind of top of mind. It's all directly tied to that goal. Then you end up with more effective meeting with more voices, which usually means way better output from it. Um, so I think that's kind of the ideal time frame. Not always possible, but something to shoot for. Yeah, I love it. And that so in that case, would you be sending that agenda to everybody in the meeting, regardless of whether or not they preferred to, you know, process on their own, or some people, you know, want to have the live interaction and bounce the ideas off and do that? Did everybody get the prep? Everyone did, yeah. And I, I found the people who, you know, wanted to own their space and get something on the agenda would, and the people who are better, I would say better live or off the cuff, they would just go into it live and, you know bounce around ideas there, but at least there's a starting point from the people who might not have had their voice heard. And I mean, I, depending on the topic, I actually prefer to have a conversation live and work through things. So I think that was my inherent bias before was that's how I would go into meetings. Totally the wrong way. So yeah, definitely well, learn from that one. It's, it's fascinating that the default always in the professional world is yeah. let's have a meeting. Yeah, right. exactly. that, is, that is the first thing that if we if something needs to be discussed, agreed to, hashed out, whatever, let's have a meeting. <laughs> and the yeah. funny thing is, as you noted there, a lot of times the meeting is kind of irrelevant. Like it could yep. have been solved with a doc. It could have been solved with a Slack channel. It could have been solved with an email. It could have been solved in many, many different ways. And which I this is why I champion the the preparation side so much, especially from a leadership perspective and core, you know, step-by-step -step process that I teach in the B2B Leaders Academy is all about making sure that your time, if you are going to spend it in a meeting, is used incredibly well because it's an yeah. expensive time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I one time we did the math of how expensive is this meeting when you just look, you know, roughly hourly rate, it's a bunch of people from the exec team and 
thousands and thousands of dollars for a meeting at times, which when you put it in that perspective, it really opens your eyes of, do I need to be wasting this time right now? And if we're going to use it, just make sure we get something out of it. Yeah, that, that might be a fun exercise to do that if you have just very general, we don't need specifics on people across the company, but you know, general hourly rates that you would might assign to the execs, the yeah. VPs, the directors, the managers, and the ICs. And then and then just a really simple calculator that's like, <laughs> okay, here's here's how many people from these different levels, here's how long the meeting is, boom, this is the cost. Is yeah. your topic worth that amount of money? And it's a serious gut check. I would bet that it is. 90% plus of meetings would drop off pretty fast if they if, if people really understood that that hard dollar amount. Yeah. And I mean, especially with remote, like that's a whole other topic, but with remote we- meetings, we're a fully remote company as well. I find for those, especially if you don't have prep, the meetings can go off the rails yeah. incredibly quickly. Yep. So yeah, I think it is a good gut check for sure. And it's it's funny. There's there's a great book called Meetings Suck. Are you familiar with that one? <laughs> I'm not. No. Oh, it's 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 awesome. And I I teach something that's very very similar. It's not the meeting suck philosophy, but it's very much in line. And teach that in the B two B Leaders Academy. But there's one piece that I love the how they framed it, and it and it comes down to the agenda, just like we were mm-hmm. talking about. And it's no agenda, no attenda. And I just, I thought that was just so perfectly said, yet is so often overlooked, right? And if you're yeah. going to spend time, might as well, you better have an agenda. And if you're going to attend a meeting, it's your responsibility to validate that there is an agenda because you're just as responsible for that time, regardless of if you're an attendee or the one person who set it up. Yeah. I mean, so on that point too, at one of my prior companies, we had a rule where if the meeting, if you were invited and you looked at the agenda and it wasn't relevant, you could opt out because oftentimes I've sat through, I don't know how many meetings in my career where I didn't have anything to say. Like I had, it's useful for me to be there and absorb the info, but send me the notes after and I could do it in three, four minutes versus just sitting there absorbing information. So we found that rule helped. The leaders had to also do it or otherwise no one else would actually, it's kind of a gutsy thing to do. So yeah, I'm not going to this meeting. So when the leader started doing it though, others started following and it was actually pretty useful to free up people's time and be more productive. Yeah, it's awesome. Right? That, that's wonderful. And it, it all comes back to our topic of, you know, adapting and, yeah. and knowing that your audience is going to want to interact, especially in a meeting, in different ways, whether they yeah. want more time to prep and process beforehand, whether a meeting, and oftentimes it is the single best vehicle to get done what you need to get done, but you got to know mm-hmm. what it is before you do it. And then assign the prep and it's, it all comes down to the level of effort that you're willing to put in because it takes time to develop yeah. the agenda, especially a week in advance, like we were talking about. It takes time to send it out and make sure everybody knows what's going to happen. And it, it, frankly, time is one of those things that everybody you know is scarce across the board. And the first mm-hmm. thing that falls off the plate when everybody gets busy, which they are, is preparation. Right? Yeah. But preparation is also the solution to all the challenges that come with, we have too many meetings. <laughs> Would you agree? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's one of those, it's almost like a delayed gratification thing, right? Like you have to do the work up front and then you don't see the rewards until it's actually a productive meeting. So I think that's probably where people struggle a little bit. And like you said, it's easy to fall off the plate when I have a hundred tasks that I'm juggling. So one thing I I did there you know, we're a slightly smaller company now, so we don't need to do as much here. But when I was managing a larger team was let people own their own meetings. So I'm not the one doing it all. Partly it's, you know, a great learning opportunity for people to kind of step up and own their part. 
And it's a good experience for them being able to do that when maybe traditionally they don't. So that was something I did a lot where let's say we're going to have a customer marketing meeting between marketing and customer success, just as an example. I would let our customer marketing manager be the one to organize that, run it, come up with the agenda, plan it. And you know, every month or every week, whenever we had it, they would be the one who did that. Selfishly, it took time off my plate, but I also think it really helped develop skills that they might not have got usually. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, that's a great opportunity to delegate and let other people take ownership of pieces, free yeah. up some of your time and build some new skills. I think that's that's wonderful. So let's drill in a little more on the identification. We talked about the introvert, extrovert is kind of a very yeah. big, broad category. But how else have you found it strategies, tactics, tips, and and to really understand how someone else functions, like, and how they would best operate in whatever kind of environment needs to be created. Yeah. I mean, so one of the companies I worked with, everyone actually took Myers-Briggs and we mm. knew where we all were. And that was really eye-opening. But the thing that was especially eye-opening for me is I could pretty much guess by knowing the people and actually having conversations about their day-to-day -day life and, you know, building that camaraderie and outside of work you can be surprisingly accurate, but I think that's a good, good gauge. Like it's not just the introvert extrovert. The other one was, you know, are they a J or a P, which partly is organization and where they stand there. That was another one for me because I am way on the P side. Let's wing it in a lot of areas, especially in marketing. And I need people on the other side who can kind of bounce me out. So I think that's another spectrum to kind of look at that I found useful. But I mean, the short of it is actually get to know the people and make time for stuff during work hours that lets you do that. So, I mean, people might overlook a, a team lunch or, you know, a team get together, like, let's just go grab donuts and coffee for 30 minutes and think it's a waste of time. But I found I learned more from that and getting to know the people that paid off in the long run for sure. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of some form of assessment to give you the you know, you can generally know, of course, yeah. but giving the language to describe things and Myers-Briggs certainly been through that, recognize it's a great one. My favorite is always the strengths finder assessment from Gallup. Have you ever yeah. been through that one? I have. Yeah. It was a while yeah. back, like when I was in sales, but yeah, went through that one. And that, that one is, is my favorite because it does nothing more than provide language to describe what you're naturally talented to do, which is a really yeah. difficult question to answer on your own. I said, yep. Dustin, what are you naturally talented to do? It's pretty hard to answer, right? We it all is, answer yeah. in generalities or say vague things. I like working with people. I like helping customers, blah, blah, blah. But when you take the StrengthsFinder assessment, you get a very, very clear description of your top most dominant strengths when in the premises acknowledge where you don't have strengths, but focus on what you're already talented to yeah. do and your success will go through the roof. And I've certainly found that that myself as well. Yeah. And there's something I think to be said about the labeling side where it's through an assessment versus a judgment from an individual. Yeah. Like I, if an assessment says that's maybe how I am, it's just, you get less defensive, right? You don't get up in arms. Whereas if a person said, oh, you know, you're like this, so this is how I'm going to act entirely different. You, you almost immediately say, no, I don't, even if it's 100% yeah. accurate, because you don't want to be told. Nobody wants to be told that. And that, yeah. that's always been my problem with Myers-Briggs, was that it puts yeah. you in a box. Like, oh, this is your box, and you play in this yeah. box, and that's your quadrant, and you stay there. And then when I found the StrengthsFinder one, all it is is words. It's just language. It's yeah. no, no labels, no nothing. They're just, these strengths are things to describe 
what you can't describe by yourself that thousands and thousands of hours of research went into formulating and just perfectly crafting these things. And the interesting thing is there are 34, a universe of 34 strengths in the strengths finder world. And when you take the assessment, everybody has a one to 34, most dominant mm -hmm. to least dominant, and you get a report and all the details back. But the interesting thing is I've coached hundreds of people through strengths and how to use it and go deeper than just, this is the results. And you will, I will coach many, many people where the exact same strength means completely different things to different yeah. people. And that's where the magic is, because even though it is words to describe, it's also words to interpret. So yeah. everybody takes something a little bit different. And so my number one is called Maximizer. And if your number one was Maximizer 2, we could have two completely different interpretations of what Maximizer means to each of us. And that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. We just each have our own way of seeing how this strength has benefited us and will benefit us. Yeah, I think that sparks a lot of interesting conversations as well. Because then, yeah. it, I mean, we're going back to the understanding other people thing, but I think that helps a lot. And then just one thing on the the strength side, I do want to call it that I find interesting is like also recognizing what you're not strong at, like what you're weak at. Because there's certain things I just know I will never be good at. Or maybe if I spent all my time focusing on it, I could be okay. And what I did, you know, is find people who have those strengths within my team to backfill that. So I'm never going to be the best project manager. It's just not my skill set. If you need me to come up with ideas and do something quickly, I'm your person. I can do that. Project management, I'm not. So I always would have someone who is incredibly organized, very project managey to work with so they could handle that to free me up. And oftentimes it's what they love to do anyways, because they're good at it. So I think yeah, that's super important that. building a team. That's the, it's the complementary strengths that are critical. And so yeah. further drives home the importance of you knowing your strengths as the leader, but then yeah. also knowing the strengths of the members of your team and coming up with the best way to accomplish the work needs to be done through the strengths, not necessarily yeah. through who has time. As a big, you know, the default is always, well, you have time, you work on this project. The reality is it's not going to be as good an output as if you looked at the work that needed to be done and say, you know what, this is more oriented to the strengths that this person has. Let's get them on that. Even if it takes longer to get started, it will be a far better output. I love that you called that out. And project management, I totally understand, right? And yeah. thanks for sharing something that you're not great at. I some kind of financial analysis or deep data analysis, psh, no way. <laughs> There's nothing, <laughs> there is nothing in my strengths profile up anywhere near the top. But when I talk about, you know, working with people to help them discover their strengths and helping them build leadership skills and helping people become better versions of themselves, psh, no problem. Yeah. Like I can do that all day long. And that's is what I do all day long. <laughs> yeah. And I think just, you know, we were going a little off topic here, but I think from a happiness perspective as well, that's super important because there's nothing worse than we all had a topic we hated in school, right? Like I took physics for a bit. I was just bad at it. I didn't like it. I was pounding my head against a wall trying to do it. It's just not my thing. Whereas other topics, I was great and it, it affects your happiness a ton. So I think at work, that's key. Like actually recognize your strength and the role you should be in rather than trying to pigeonhole yourself into something because someone else says you should when it's not, doesn't make you yeah. happy and you're not good at it. The other thing that is related to exactly that, which I find is sometimes not always apparent, is that there are a lot of different ways to get work done. Right? Yeah. So a particular task or project or something, 
there are an infinite number of ways to get it done. So if you really know your strengths, if you're like an individual on the team or even the leader, and you know what needs to get done, well, you can look at that work through the lens of your strengths and say, well, how can I leverage yeah. all my natural talents in order to do this project, which is going to be different from how somebody else would look at that same piece of work and look through the lens of their strengths and then come up with a different way to approach it. And I think that's one thing I think is important, especially in the adaptation piece like we're talking about, is there's a lot of different ways to get work done. Some of it might be aligned with what you think is appropriate. Some of it might be completely different, but you mm -hmm. got to be open to that and create that environment where that's okay. Yeah, like from a leadership perspective, that's why I've always, I was going to say shied away, but like ran away from micromanagers because if I'm getting prescribed the exact way to do thing and I have to do it your way, it's not going to be as good as if you give me a problem and say, this is a problem, how would you solve it? And yeah. like, sure, guide me and, and coach me, right? And that's what I try to do with people. But there's I try to avoid it at all costs saying, this is the task, go do the task. It's more, here's the problem, here's what I would probably do, but you know, Let's figure it out and give them the freedom to do that. That a hundred percent. And I, I like to call that kind of the guardrails and freedom. Like it, yeah, not yeah. everybody can feel completely comfortable in openness where it's like, figure this out, but yeah. everybody can operate within a set of guardrails. And if you as a leader understand what needs to get done and can provide the guardrails of the structure of what needs to get done, then the people can have infinite amount of creativity to operate within those guardrails so you still get done everything but it's done in a creative way that engages them that drives them that inspires them and that they feel like they have a real ownership stake in yeah i think people have or maybe i'm speaking for myself but a natural you know i like solving problems and i think most people do rather i mean there's something to be said for the dopamine hit of checking something off a list and that's great too but being given a problem to solve or a puzzle which is kind of what all this leadership stuff is anyways I think people that really gets them going a little bit and it makes for a better work environment and makes them more excited about what they're doing. Yeah, because the more ownership somebody has, the more engaged they will be, the more yeah. their work is aligned with their strengths, the better the output they will it will be, and the more just ownership and feeling good they will they will have. Right. And yeah. that sometimes as simple as it sounds, doing work that is aligned with your strengths is where the greatest satisfaction and joy will come from. Period. And when yeah. you feel that in your work. That translates into how you feel about your leader, how you feel about your company, how you feel about your customers, how you feel about your life. <laughs> like It yeah. permeates everything. And I think this is one of those things that's often overlooked because we have jobs to do. We have work to do. We just need to get to it and check things off the list. And the reality is it's not necessarily the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we, you know, through a similar thing where I was at a company, we grew really fast, really quick, and then it slowed down for a bit, which I think is pretty normal. And what we did there is we wanted to keep a lot of these great people, but we didn't necessarily have, this is your next promotion in six months. This is your linear path. So we focused more on that challenge side and gave them more opportunity to try new things, maybe swap to a different role. So I had someone who worked in three different marketing roles for me because she liked to learn and, you know, here's, here's a new thing. Go learn this one. Career-wise, it probably helped her a bunch, but I also think it helped her sanity and everyone else on the team yeah. to, to have that. And I think a lot of companies now where there were layoffs, you know, people are still hiring, but it's a sketchy market out there in a lot of industries. I, I think that's a key thing to keep your people and keep them happy is give them some stretch assignments and let them get out there and feel challenged a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if you're struggling with, you know, the environment and not able to promote to even increase comp, whatever it is, yeah. 
right? Growth in from a personal perspective will always rule all of them. But that requires you, the leader, understanding that, number one, and two, having those conversations with the employee to find out what it is that they want yeah. to grow. What skill set do they want to get into? Is it a different role it, but or is it a different application of some area of their current role that would just allow them to take on more responsibility, have some more fun, and just overall engage? But if you can find that and unlock that, the yeah. the comp conversations and the promotion conversations, they kind of take a backseat because growth usually becomes the number one thing that people want to do because they're excited about it. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the funny thing is getting people to figure out what they want to do. And for me too, as well, if someone asks, you know, what do you want to do in your next role? I don't know, but I can tell you what I like doing. And so that's kind of was my approach to it. Cause I, at first I would ask, you know, what other roles interest you? What do you think? And no one would know, like the yeah. odd person would have their plan, but then I switched it to, what do you like doing your current job? What don't you like doing? And I do that in interviews as well. When I'm hiring people is, you know, what's your favorite part of demand gen marketing from hiring a demand gen person what part don't you like because then you can start figuring out you know is this role right for them and you know if not how maybe they're the right person and i should craft this role to them so i think that's an important thing yeah and you made a really good distinction which is going from a very broad general question to something very specific so yeah. people have trouble answering the question what do you want your next role to be because it's like i don't know <laughs> some people a small percentage will probably know what their path is and that's okay but vast majority yeah. of people it's a really open-ended very difficult question to answer not to mention whatever their relationship is with you or the company that might be a difficult one to answer especially if yeah. it's not aligned with what they're currently doing so there's a lot of like kind of loaded stuff that goes along with that one but then you switched and asked you know what do you really like about your role what don't you like about your role and people know that yeah. hands down right they can articulate here's what i love here's what i don't love and then you can help them see those from a skill set perspective, where to invest and where to go deeper and where to maybe find somebody else to help take over the list. So I, I love that you call that that distinction. Yeah. And on the hiring front too, it's a nice way to you know, make, make sure people don't end up in the wrong roles as well. Like I say, I'm hiring for a marketing operations person and they say, you know, I like being creative and I hate numbers. Maybe not the right role. So catching that early, I think, is really helpful. So you get the right people in the right seats; they're happier. You know, there's not as much turnover, and you going back to the drawing board there. So I think ask those questions early as possible is is my approach there. Yeah, and get specific on those questions because yeah. the more specific, the better the answer. The more general and vague, the worse the answer you'll get, or just complete confusion. So getting specific is always going to serve you well. All right, Dustin. Well, let's begin to wrap up. We recovered a lot of great tips on how to adapt your leadership style to your employees. Maybe share with us what's the one last kind of parting thought you would leave with our audience. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back to it and it maybe I repeated it a few times, but I think especially in this remote world, like take the time to get to know people. It's harder remote, you know, set aside the time, whether it's a culturally kind of mandated company thing where it's people get matched and get 20 minutes to go over virtual coffee. Or if you just take the time to reach out to someone department, another department and say, hey, let's chat for 15 minutes. Like take the time to actually do that in remote. Otherwise you'll feel isolated. You won't know your coworkers. You won't be as productive. So I think just take the initiative to do that is kind of the, the first part. Yeah, I love it. And and my last piece on that is I highly recommend using some form of assessment. As you heard, yeah. my favorite is Finder because it's a language 
Dustin's used Myers-Briggs, whatever. There's a lot of them out there, but yeah. all of it, you got to find something that gives you language and gives the other person language to understand themselves in a way that they can't articulate today. And when you do that, you just cut through the noise and get to the clearest understanding of how somebody else thinks. And if I know what somebody else's drinks profile is, then I know how to communicate with them. I know how they're going to behave. I know why they will do certain things. And that is, you know, leadership gold essentially, and ultimately making sure that we get done everything we need to get done, but we do it in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Love it. Cool. Well, Dustin, it's been a blast hanging out with you. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your expertise here. I look forward to maybe having you back as a future guest on another episode. So thanks. Yeah, no, Nils, thanks for having me. Definitely had fun. Yeah, always open to have these conversations. All right, man, take care. Yeah, you too.